Hi, everybody. Welcome back to the uh, Josh and Jordy show, where we try to emulate emulate the real life experience of sitting next to those two old guys in the balcony in the Muppet Theater. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? Oh, I love the Muppets. Yeah, they're so grumpy and funny. Yeah, that's great. Exactly. I don't remember their names, but I remember them. Uh, it's like Stadler and somebody else. But, um, you know, that's kind of what we're like, right? Sitting up here talking. Yeah, we're exactly like that. It's the same thing, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, great. I'm glad uh, we're getting back together to to talk. And I think today we're going to try to talk about, uh, I know some might say more serious topic than, you know, talking about our 80s music and 90s music and television shows and all that. But I think we're going to talk about what we probably love the most in life professionally, which is teaching so um i don't know jody i just i'll start off just sort of like laying down the the foundation but you and i've been teaching at the same college for a long time and yeah how long have you been there 2009 okay yeah 2000 january 2008 okay and so it wasn't until this year where we're like oh hey let's talk you know so we started talking and so we have a lot of similar sort of circumstances you've been an at you were an adjunct for a number of years i'm still an adjunct and you uh, and i kind of understand that role that life of being an adjunct instructor but i hate that that word that definition because when you're an adjunct it really doesn't mean anything other than um you're adjacent to (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you know, benefits yeah. and, and there's some things that, you know, personally, but like when you're in that classroom, you're their teacher and they don't care. They don't know they, they're not, they don't, you know, they all think we have a, a million parking spaces. And of course today we do because there's no one on campus anymore, but. Um, Jordy, well, and if, yeah. um, I don't know if you noticed, but I never say the word adjunct. I always say part-time. Yeah. Um, and it's because of that. It's because you're, your students don't have any idea that you're part-time or full-time. They don't know the difference between those two. Yeah. Um, and they and the grade that you put on their transcript is the grade on their transcript. It doesn't make any difference what your position is at the college. It's a grade that's going to follow them possibly for the rest of their life. So your importance as their instructor is uh, is the same no matter what your position or your 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 permanent permanent status at the college is. And uh, that's really important because on um, when I was a student, for example, I didn't know the difference between part-time and full-time and I couldn't have cared less. But uh, as being both a part-timer and a full-timer, I've come to understand what it means and it's highly demoralizing sometimes and it's m- might be freeing as well. So there's, there's ins and outs to part-time versus full-time. But I think the biggest thing is that the colleges, and this isn't just a city college thing, the colleges around the country are balancing their their books basically on the people like you and me who just want to teach and love to teach. And if we're going to make a fraction of what a full-timer makes, they're banking on the fact that we're better people than they are <laughs> <laughs> yeah they, meaning the people who are trying to balance the the budget of the college it's not our college in particular but yeah yeah 
Yeah, no, and I've taught anywhere from three to 16 units uh, in a, in a year, you know, or semester. And I want to talk to you about that, about teaching and why you do it and, and the love for it. You did it so long as a part-timer, you taught at other campuses. What is it about being a, a teacher that appeals to you? It's, it's, it's not the money. It's not the fame and glory. It's, it's something else, right? So can you talk about why you love it so much? Yeah. And well, I want to talk to you about that too, and mm-hmm. see why you love it as well. But uh, for me, um, teaching is a calling. And uh, I think that teaching, like among other professions, the people who do it really well and put their best effort to it are called to it. And I was called to it at 15 for better or worse. That's when I took my first city college class. And I um, was not a dedicated student before that. I, you know, had no hope in my life. So, so the idea of going to school or getting anything out of school, I mean, I didn't understand school before that. I, I didn't, I didn't, you know, I, I my uh, ability to learn things in a traditional classroom was very low. So my first community college experience, I took a class and a history class, and uh, it was just so amazing. And I watched the professor, Curtis Solberg, and watched him just paint this very clear picture of how people's behavior over time impacted what happened in the past and continues to impact us. Mm -hmm. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be that person. And so I'm not sure if it was a calling because it was the first time in my life where being in a classroom made sense, or if I just saw it and thought like, I can do that and I could do it pretty well, I think. Mm -hmm. But um, after that, going to school and everything I did was to get back to a community college. I wanted to teach specifically at a community college. And I've said this on your Uh, when you first interviewed me before we were doing the Josh and Jordy show, when it was just Josh interviewing Jordy, uh, that um, community college is very special. It's, it's truly what, what is the best about the U S it allows for anybody to get a higher education, no matter what their background is. And in that everybody is benefited. Um, We see a lot of wasted talent because people just can't, get access to education, can't get access to a career that could actually benefit not just them, but everybody. Mm-hmm. So, um, so yeah, so that's why I wanted to become a teacher. I felt a calling and being a teacher is, I just can't even imagine doing anything else. I mean, I, I mean, maybe a park ranger, like I'd like to be a park ranger, but that's With Yogi a- and Boo Boo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But that's just another type of teaching. Like I would just be walking around telling people, <clears throat> about plants and where to find bears or avoid them depending on <laughs> and pick, pick up your trash yeah. <laughs> um yeah so and I was librarian before I was a teacher and again mm-hmm. that's that's another type of of education so um so yeah for me one thing that was really clear during the pandemic and then during the mask wearing which we're only like two weeks out of wearing masks at uh and knock on wood, um, was that uh, when I'm teaching, when I'm lecturing, I completely forget about anything else in the world. Mm. And I just am able to, and that's that's not true at any other 
time in my life. Um, I can just focus on being in the classroom. And what's great is that independently, I, I don't tell students that, that like I completely forget what's going on in the world around me. And I'm just 100% focused in that classroom. But what's great is when I have students independently tell me that they feel the same way, that they forget about what's going on in the in the world and they're focused on the classroom. So um, during the pandemic, that wasn't so true. But uh, But yeah, so teaching for me is <clears throat> wonderful. I love it. I love helping students like me who didn't maybe always feel like they understood the classroom. Uh, I love helping them understand. Um, I love, it's like that Bob Marley quote, emancipate yourself from mental slavery. That's what we're doing in there. We're ironically gaining a formal education <laughs> and learning to question the system that, that raised us <clears throat> and indoctrinated us within the system yeah <laughs> so teaching i love but bureaucracy and some other things i don't love so much yeah 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 it's a it's a really amazing profession because it's totally true like i could be having a million things on my mind but as soon as you walk into that classroom it's like this just damn breaks on your back and it's just like you're free and for the 80 minutes or you know longer if you've got a couple back-to-back -back classes or whatever it feels just so liberating it feels as though nothing else matters other than you're here to serve you're here to help and that's a real that's a feeling that is very hard to replicate in in any setting professional or or personal it's like this is a very unique thing to to this experience it's funny because last week i got this this is, I mean, I, there's a certain kind of compliment and i'm sure you get it too and you know like that's a real like because there's things people say and you're like oh, it'd be nice and there's other things they say that are like that is true and so i had this this is the first time i had this compliment in whatever 12 13 years was these, they were in groups and these two students, they're, they're pairs and they're talking and they're kind of done with their part. So I'm walking around just like checking in. And she says, do you have a PhD? And uh, my first reaction was, oh no, you know, like this is going to be like embarrassing or they're going to judge me, you know, like, so like, nope, don't have a PhD. And, and she says, I knew it. <laughs> and so I'm like, oh my God, she's judging me. Like she can, you know, she thinks I'm a terrible teacher. She's like, because you're a really good teacher. And what I found was that teachers with PhDs are not, are not good teachers. Like she literally said that. Yeah. And um, I'm glad you don't because I love this class. And so that I never had that one before. Like that was a total, mm -hmm. total new one. And I sort of felt sort of relieved because I was thinking like, and you know, this is that. And I, so I went into my whole thing, like, well, when, in terms of what I teach, what's really valued is education. Yes. But also real world experience and to be able to talk about what you do. So these students can go out and do the same thing or do different things, but just understand that base. And so I, that made me feel as though I was being effective. And me, like one of the ways that I teach, like no one is, you're not going to find anyone on this planet who's taken my class who's going to say that he's 
genius, um, that he's the smartest teacher I've ever had. Like they're, they're never going to say that, but they will say that he's the best teacher I ever had because he really allows us to be us. And that's a unique skill because there are some teachers who just teach. It doesn't matter who's out there. They mm-hmm. kind of teach the same every time. And as this, I think this is where, when we talk about inclusion and diversity and equity, this is really what it means to me, which is students have to feel as though their teacher is relating to them Mm -hmm. in a unique way. Even if you have 30 students in a class or, you know, maybe you probably have larger classes than I do, but writing their cap lower and and they have to feel like they can see themselves in you. And whenever I teach, like I can see myself in many of these students. They're the students who were ignored and neglected and never were given a little extra push, uh, never were told you can do this. And you can tell who those students are, but for whatever reason, but the, the miracle of whatever deity you want to believe in, they found this classroom and they are there. And this mm-hmm. is your moment to help them or disappoint them again. And that's what I really enjoy is being able to say, Hey, I know you never talk and I send the back every time, but I know you're listening. I know you're paying attention. I can tell and making them feel included. I've also had this compliment of you're the first teacher I ever had that made me feel as though I could um, raise my hand and talk. Like that's like, that, that's a real compliment. You know, that's not like you're a good teacher. And so knowing that you're having an impact on these individuals who have been mistreated by the public education system for ever neglected is really really uh really powerful and that's that's what i enjoy about it to be able to make somebody feel like they can believe in themselves in ways that they never thought they they could before and also i'm teaching them how to do something i'm you know i know really well <laughs> so mm-hmm. I'm also teaching them the substance and they, they can see it right away. Like journalism is one of these things where like I tell them all the time, what you learn here and what you're going to learn in the next few years and what you go do, it's the same thing they're doing at the New York times and the Washington post. It isn't as though you go somewhere and then you learn a whole new way to do it. It's these principles and fundamentals are the same. So if you learn how to be a good reporter an interviewer and writer now, like that's the same throughout your life. Of course, you get better and there's more people and the, the importance of the topics uh, grow in terms of what you're reporting if you're in a big, big market, but it's the same. And they really like being able to, to see, to see that. And so that's what I, I like about it is I always sort of feel like there's some student who's just like me in this room who I can have a major impact on and we also know that we can't do that with every student right there i've had students drop class or get a bad grade and then they come back later and Mm -hmm. and they're ready two years later they weren't ready before and then i'm better now i'm different in terms so i like that and i think also as teachers we're constantly like going to school too like we're Mm -hmm. constantly learning we're constantly right. learning, like, how do I be better? How do I be different? How do I refine? 
and we're learning from our our students. So I think you and I have that in common. I think that's probably why we sort of, um, you know, have connection. And I think it's what makes us good teachers is that we know what it's like to be on the other end of that. And we're constantly trying to break that cycle. You know? Yeah. So. Yeah. And I think um, with, you know, with you and I, we, we teach different subjects, obviously, but key to being a good teacher is teaching something that you love. And I would think that who whoever is teaching out there, they studied the thing that they loved. So that's what they're going to teach. So I would hope that everybody is teaching the thing that they love. But um, but for me, teaching geography is, you know, like I love geography so much. And I don't necessarily want to turn everybody into a geographer, but I do want them to see the value and the importance of something that is undertaught, something that isn't part of our normal people. So many people come into my classroom and think that they're going to learn places on a map. I don't know if this is true for other uh, other instructors and in different different uh, fields, but I can't tell you how many people have told me what geography is. And so I'll be teaching and they'll be like, no, this isn't geography. You're supposed to be teaching this other thing. And I'm like, <laughs> uh, no, I think I know what geography is and I'm sure I'm teaching the right thing. But be because it's not really a part of our formal education before that, you know, it's geography was kind of split up between history, earth science and social science in our formal education it's a whole long story. It has to do with the Nazis and imperialism. But um, but for a long time, like geography was kind of like divided. And so I get a lot of students who don't know what the subject is. And I love teaching them what the subject is, because even if they don't become geographers or don't find, because again, I think like teaching geography is a calling, you know, you either, you either have it or you don't. It's like singing. It's like you can go to all kinds of vocal lessons, but uh, you either got it or you don't got it. Mm -hmm. um, so some people come into my classroom and realize like, oh, this is what I've been searching for, which is exactly what I, the revelation I had when I became a geographer, when I started uh, studying geography, it was something I didn't know that it existed. And when I found it, I realized like, oh, this is exactly what I had been looking for. I wanted to be a teacher, but I wanted to teach about human behavior, but I also wanted to teach about the environment because even back then in the nineties, it was like the environment was a big pressing issue and more so now, and we haven't done nearly as much to, uh, to help ourselves in the biosphere. But again, that's another story. Um, but so I wanted to teach both those things and I thought I had to choose between them. But when I found geography, I realized like, oh, wait, I can teach uh, about the environment and I can teach about human behavior and how human behavior is impacted by the environment and humans impact the environment. Anyway, so when you teach something that you love, I think that you're a better teacher anyway. Um, I'm not sure that I would be the same teacher if I was teaching accounting or, or I don't know. Um, something else <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, because I just don't have the same passion for it. So for you as a journalist, because you've been a journalist, because it's something that you enjoy and you have a calling to be, I would assume that you were a much better teacher because of that. Whereas 
it's hard to get excited about something that you don't necessarily feel strongly passionate towards. And so students feel that, you know, they feel that passion that you have in the classroom and they respond to it because energy responds to energy, you know, game recognizes game and our students can feel when you're excited about something and they get excited about it too. And it makes them feel more included. Um, but yeah, the, the seeing students and, and thinking, feeling like you identify with them <clears throat> and feeling them for me, um, I want them to see themselves in me in some way or another, which is why I'm brutally honest about who I am. Uh, that's one thing that I didn't really find with professors when I was in school is they didn't really tell you who they were. And so I had this idea. I wanted to be a professor, but I had such a jaded, terrible past. And I didn't imagine that any of these people had that. I imagined that they all had been in a very nice family from a very young age, that they'd always been good students, that they went home and read all the time. And so I, I know that I know that as a student, I idolized these people <clears throat> and thought that I could never really be like them because they don't have the same background as me. But then when I went to graduate school and then as I got to know other professors, I realized, oh, yeah, they do. <laughs> they have all kinds of backgrounds. And why aren't they telling their students this? Why aren't they telling them? I mean, maybe you want to have boundaries, obviously. You don't want to show like all your vulnerabilities, but show a little bit. Tell students that you got to see, you know, in, in something. Tell students that you had a period of, of uh, disillusion and you left school and followed the harvest, which is one of what one of our students is doing right now. Um, well, we still love him. <laughs> well, of course, Jacob Todd Frank, when you're ready to come back to school, please do when you finish following the harvest. But uh, but have those periods like be honest with who, with your students, with um, who you are. And I think a lot of people think, oh, if they see my vulnerabilities, then they won't actually have faith that I can teach them. But I I can tell you it's the opposite, that showing them your vulnerabilities gives them something to identify with, but also it helps them trust you. And what I've learned as a teacher is that if you don't have the trust of your students, if you're trying to teach them whatever you're trying to teach them, controversial topics, topics that challenge them in some way, if they don't trust you, they're not going to listen to you. Mm -hmm. So gaining their trust in the classroom, and some sometimes that's showing your vulnerability. Sometimes it's saying like, oh, oops, I don't, you know, I'm like writing something on the board. My writing is terrible. It's absolutely illegible. Like I should have been a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I'll write stuff and I won't know how to spell it. And I'll say like, does there an E here? And students would be like, E, there's an E, you know. <laughs> but like, <laughs> but showing them stuff like that, that like you don't write very well and you don't know how to spell. And for some reason, whenever you're drawing something on the board, it ends up looking like a big phallus instead of like a like what it's supposed to look like. And <laughs> And you're not sure why, why whatever you draw ends up very phallic, but, uh, mm -hmm. but yeah, so, so yeah, so I would, <clears throat> I would say that identifying yourself in students and allowing them to identify themselves in you and gaining trust and having passion in your subject, all of that makes you a good teacher, you know, yeah. that, that brings students in because the idea is you're, you're trying to inspire them to, to learn. You're not, you're not the one with all the answers. 
you're the one who's showing them how to analyze the information and hopefully figure out the answers on their own. And let's be real, there are some teachers, some students are brilliant. They're so smart and they really force us to be on our best too. And 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 it's so encouraging when you have these students and you're like, whoa, you know, you're going to just be amazing, you know, or like a Jacob Todd Frank, who is brilliant, but quiet, you know, and you sort of have to figure out like, how do I get him to, to see himself the way you and I clearly see him because we've had so many different students and you know, that's, that's a challenge. This you're gonna hate this question, but do you have like a worst day, best day in the classroom kind of story? Uh, you know, when you when you think back about how far you've come and where you started, and do you have anything like that? Or you're like, oh man, that was a day. No, no, I don't think so. Like I, I um, oh well, I mean, I've had like situations. I again, I teach topics that can be very controversial and I have people who have emotional responses to them Mm -hmm. and uh, I had you know um, this one student like standing over another student yelling at her once like he got up and and he was like former military and uh, was had some emotional PTSD something and uh, she said something like in class and it was just a offhanded remark about something that um, she felt comfortable saying in class because that's what I try to do is make students feel comfortable saying whatever they're going to say because we're in a learning environment. Um, and the idea is that you're learning, not constantly checking yourself. So she said something that, and this guy just snapped and he stood over her and he was yelling like, how dare you? And I was like, oh my God, security. Like, I don't know what to do. <laughs> Eric, where are you? <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Um and she was so amazing. Her name's, well, I don't know. Yeah, I'm not saying the other student's name. Her name's Danny, and she was she's in Miami now. And uh, she's uh, she was amazing. She she um, she was just like I said what I said, you know, <laughs> prove me wrong. And so I had to kind of I tried to calm and end up. My biggest thing was like step away from the young woman, like don't stand over her. And then he left. And then you know you have to get student services involved and stuff like that. And everything was fine. He came back to class eventually and he finished the class and everything, but there was that. And after he left, there was like 20 minutes left of class. And I had, I was giving them a midterm the next day. So I had to get like this information, but I could not, like I'd lost the class, obviously, you know, like that they were not going to listen to any more information that day um, because some giant former military guy had just stood over this young petite uh latina and yelled at her and um and there was just no coming back from that so i had to let them leave uh but anyway (laughs) there's been stuff like that that's happened um yeah and i've had also where I had this guy just like wander into one of my summer session classes once he wasn't in the class and he wandered in and I was like, all right, he wants to sit there. That's okay. Uh But afterwards um, he like backed me into a corner and there were all these rocks because geography. And uh, (laughs) so I, I like picked one up and like had to tell him to get out of the classroom. Um, 
And then I called security and talked to security and everything. And the next day they're like, okay, we'll, we'll be around your classroom and yada, 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 in case he comes back. But the next day I told my students, I, you know, I was like, did you see that guy just wandering? Did you all feel comfortable just leaving me alone with him? <laughs> what happened afterwards? Um, <laughs> and they're like, oh my goodness. Right. And then the guy came back. And when he came back, you know, I'd been told by security, like, if you see him call security immediately. And so it was like five minutes left of class and he came back and I was like, okay, everybody, we're going to wrap this up. I got to, you know, they, they knew I had already told them, like, if I see him, I have to call security. So I went to call and I was like, you guys can leave. Don't worry. None of them left. Like every one of my students stayed. They were like, we're not going to leave. We left you yesterday. And (laughs) so that was, yeah, that was a very sweet moment for me that like not one of the students left. They all decided to wait um, because they didn't want to leave me alone with this dude. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know, going to your first point, how cool is it to to be able to facilitate good conversations in the classroom where you you as the teacher you just like step back and you watch them learning from each other and mm-hmm. often those conversations erupt over some disagreement some conflict where they're just like no that's not how it is let me tell you how it is and then you as the teacher have to make them somehow both feel safe to express their ideas without judgment and that's the only way. And then when it works perfectly, when they're done, they're like friends or they, they like agree that they, oh, I learned something. And that's a very unique skill to be able to have where you're not taking sides with anyone. I mean, even if you know somebody's like, that's so wrong, still mm-hmm. them filling the space to to be able to express it. Like when technology fails, like when I was first starting out, I was just, I would just dread like, oh my goodness, how am I going to get the projector to be in sync with my computer here and what's going to happen or audio. Like when I remember when I was first starting out and I'm at the bunker, I didn't know what all those controls were and like, why is there no audio? And then I went, I went like a whole class, like, I guess we're not going to have audio. And then as soon as everyone left, I kind of stuck around like, oh, all I had to do was press this button and it flips. But there's not a whole lot of like training that goes with that. It's just like, here's yeah. your stuff and figure yeah. it out. So those technology failed days early on were always very stressful. And I used to always make sure I had a ton of markers in the class. And before we stopped doing everything through paper, do I have enough copies for class that I can hand out? And quizzes and scantrons and just do I have backup like just that over preparedness feeling that you have as a as a young teacher and then you start to get more comfortable and realize you know it's it's gonna be fine if technology fails you can have a creative day where you're just talking you know and and I've also learned that too is you can over prepare you can over plan and and sometimes you the, te- the students just want to hear your stories that day. They don't, does it need to be synced with a PowerPoint or a Google Slides? It's, it's okay, you know? So those are like my worst days is, are those. How do you deal with that, that line between teaching and being firm and stern and having expectations with coddling? Because I think that, I mean, we do know in high school, 
some teachers just coddle like great everything pass them they get to college it's a real world awakening but how do you how do you maintain your trust with your students when you know you have to be like no 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 um versus i need sensitivity here to this person's situation yeah well um and by the way i thought of a another best day ever story that i'll uh, say in a minute but uh um i i don't know you know it's uh, it's hard to say like like where i say no versus coddling because you know um there's understanding and there's coddling and uh i would say that i knew this this instructor i saw their study guide for for an exam and basically they had written out everything and just let blank spaces that their students had to fill in as their mm -hmm. study guide and i just thought like what <laughs> this is not this is coddling this is this is you know and the, and the instructor even said like oh i spoil them and i was like this so i try to keep in mind you have a whole the you know the beauty of working in a community college is you have this diverse set of students and some of them are 15 some of them are 80 uh some of them have no formal background in school some of them have a ton you know they went to amazing schools they went to private whatever um and uh some of them have kids at home they're working two three jobs they're living with roommates you know there's share there's like 52 people sharing a closet and somebody like two people sleep in the bathtub how can you even study in that how can you get the space and time that you need to to sleep and to recharge <clears throat> so I try to keep in mind that when I have students who come to me and they're like, I have this, 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 and this, uh, what is, what is my goal? So I think that a lot of people get stuck on the idea of what's fair and that term, you know, just drives me nuts. It's what's fair, uh, is that your students get what they need and they have different needs. And again, I know I can hear people thinking like, well, how am I supposed to know what all their needs are? Well, in the past, and often instructors still err on the side of, I'm just going to assume everybody's lying to me. So they're all going to have the same, like, if you don't turn it in by this due date, then forget about it, no matter what. But um, I err on the side of, okay, there's going to be two people who are slackers out of the 10 who are asking me for an extension. And yeah, two people might be slackers, but the other eight are dealing with real issues. And if my goal is to be a teacher and to make sure that they is to put information and analysis and understanding ahead of bureaucracy like due dates and et cetera, et cetera, then I need to keep that in mind. What is the goal? You know, the goal is not that they finish something on this arbitrary date, but that they understand it and they finish it. Mm -hmm. So last week, for example, I gave midterms. And I had one student, and I mean, the student was going out of his mind. Like he had a botany exam, he had a quiz, he he was so stressed out. So I was like, why don't you just take my midterm next week? You know, like just don't don't worry about it. Go focus on botany. Um, and then I had another student who who came up and said the same thing. Is in the same botany class. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, it's it my goal is that they understand botany and they understand my class as well. So that's not coddling. That's taking 
that's teaching them that what's important is their <clears throat> understanding of the subject and also their mental health, their their feeling of safety in a classroom. Um, so yeah, so I think coddling would be assuming that they can't do the work on their own. Whereas what I'm doing is trying to give them the space to do the work within the context of their life, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. So I want them to be able to do the work and understand it within all their, the other things that they're expected to do, have to do, as yeah. opposed to assuming you can't do this. So I'm going to make it so easy for you that basically you're not going to do it at all, but you're still going to get a passing grade. Mm -hmm. That's not doing them any favors. It's not preparing them for the next step, which is part of my goal is that they go to wherever they get into and mm -hmm. want to go to, and they don't get there and they're lost. Mm -hmm. um, I wasn't lost after I transferred from city college and I don't want them to be lost either. So, mm -hmm. so yeah, so I don't know if that answers your question, but that's the, <laughs> that's kind of the line is remembering what is the goal here and how do I, how do I work that goal into real life scenarios? Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that's total, you know, work with them. Don't, don't do anything that makes things easier for them, but allow them the understanding to uh, complete the work and learn it and understand it. And if it means being flexible, you do it as opposed to, let me just give them a grade with the easiest minimal amount of work. Um, so you remembered a story about your best best day ever? Is that what you said? <clears throat> yeah. So I would say my best day ever is uh, when I have a classroom of really diverse students, former military, international students, young students, old students, students who came from whatever background, uh, either privileged or not privileged background. And we talk about a subject that's controversial or um you know the controversial uh and they all are able to express themselves and not feel alienated because of it and not feel like they weren't heard mm -hmm. so when i have a day like that which i've had lots of times which makes me really happy um where again i have like this whole range of students from different political um you know, fields of thought, what am I trying to say? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Political leanings, educational leanings, whatever. And we're able to talk about something controversial and they don't necessarily agree with each other or say the same things, but they are able to feel like they've been heard and they've heard the people around them. That, mm. that makes me happy. That, yeah. that's, those are my best days ever. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I agree those days when you're just done and it's like, wow, what, what credible growth and energy we just had in this session. And everybody is walking out of this room, feeling a little bit smarter than when they walked in. Those are great days. And so we were just overcoming the pandemic years and COVID and online learning. So obviously this question will be seen through that lens, but are, how are students different today versus 10 years ago or five years ago or when you first started teaching? I, I In my my field, I notice incredible amount of difference. Um, I'm constantly having to teach against social media 
and uh, TikTok and these other platforms where it's entertainment. And, and I, I'm constantly trying to expand people's attention spans and, mm -hmm. and trying to say, hey, we have to be comfortable being bored. We have to be comfortable feeling as though nothing's going on right now, because in those moments, we're forced to think and be creative. And I don't know about you, I have a sense, but growing up, I spent a lot of time alone. I think you did too. And when you are in those positions, you what do you do? You think, you plan, you envision, you set goals, you plot your world takeover. You you think about you, okay? Mm -hmm. And then with TikTok and social media, what are you doing? You're looking at other people doing things. Mm -hmm. And that's a new thing. Uh, I mean, new in this like last five years. It's like, I gen genuinely believe that you cannot be creative if you're constantly watching other people being creative, that you have to be creative in the context of you brainstorming and figuring things out on your own. Of course, we can be inspired by other people, but yeah. if you're constantly just like admiring the work and not thinking about it. And so the way that translates into journalism is Monsters, they just want to analyze the work. They just want to talk about the story and, oh, that's biased or that's not biased or that bad or that's such a good topic or there's no representation there. Where's the diversity or there's good diversity? And they come in and they think that they're just going to be able to levy their opinions on everything. And that's journalism. And and they said, yes, journalists have opinions, but before we get there, we have to like do the work. So we understand that it's really hard to be a journalist. And the first thing you write, I guarantee you, I don't care how woke progressive you are. I don't care what you are. The first thing you're going to write, somebody's going to have a problem with it. And you're going to mm -hmm. be like, wait a minute, I, I didn't mean to do that. And so I'm trying to get them to understand that you have to create and do in order to understand what it feels like before you start leveling the levying these criticisms that are just like, okay, we can all criticize everything all the time, but that's not creative. Creative is, is doing something and putting yourself out there. And so that's a challenge for me and attention spans. I mean, People only read headlines. We see that on Facebook. Like I mean, I write stories every day, and the the company I work for will put them on social media, and then I'll like look at them and like, what about this? And what about this? Like, if you actually clicked on the story, <laughs> you would know. But you're actually making judgments based off the headline. And so, what I've noticed with is is the the, the iPhone and the apps have really shortened students' attention spans. And whenever I talk to them like that, initially they come for me from their, their generational fault line of like, well, you're just older. You just don't get it. I'm like, well, I have a phone too. Like, I'm, I mean, you know, I'm on Instagram too. Like, like it's not like I don't know what, a, you know, Snapchat is. Like, I, I get it. But right. at the same time, it's about, understanding how much time you're going to spend there and how much time you're going to spend. If you experience life as opposed to observing life, you're going to be much more richer 
emotionally and intellectually. And then by the end of the semester, by mid-semester, they they kind of all understand it and and get it and that sort of thing. But I'm also not like one of these teachers who's like, never do that on social media. I understand they're going to do it, but it's about appreciating both things. So that's one of the challenges I see, you know, in terms of now versus when I started, certainly in 2009 and even just five, five years ago. But what about you? Yeah. Well, so di- different subject, right? Um, so if you're, you're teaching journalism, uh, it's social media is going to be sort of a, a different challenge for you in that, like you said, they, in order to be a journalist, they need to go deep into something and really understand it. And even, even in a long article, you're still only writing, you know, a, a fraction of what you actually know about this subject. And then if you break that down even further into a headline or into a 30 second clip on social media, then you really lose the, the thought, the, the intention that has to go into truly understanding something. Um, so for me, with so, with social media in particular, what I see as a challenge is that students, so like students today coming in, graduating high school, coming into City College today, they've grown up and can't remember a time without an iPhone and can't remember a time that somebody wasn't constantly taking pictures of them and that their parents most likely put them on social media growing up and that they sort of like transferred into okay, now I'm on social media. And what I've learned is that my life isn't so much about the intention and the sort of spaces in between. It's about packaging myself in a way and putting it out there for other people's consumption. You know, I think that a really big challenge for our students today is understanding that that their life is complex and it's not cut down to these pretty little packages that we that we place on social media. Um, and I think it's challenging for them to understand that they're going to have bumps in the road and they're going to have moments where they don't understand things very well. And if they compare themselves to the kind of perfected life that they see of somebody that they're following on social media, they're going to feel inadequate and they're going to feel like they just can't do the things that they want to do. And so for me, the challenges that I see is that students kind of feel despair because they don't feel like they they add up to or you know are are on par with some of the people that they follow or their entire life is about capturing that that moment and putting it on social media so instead of instead of living for that moment and really feeling it and understanding it it's all just there as a way to put themselves out there and and commodify themselves you know they they themselves become a commodity uh for me trying to teach them that the future survival of our species is based on a whole lot of working together, understanding each other. I mean, if we really want to look at the the challenges that we have to look at today in the world, um, climate change, for example, then we need to be able to understand each other. And that comes from a lot more than just like a, a soundbite on social media, right? Um, and that our our survival as a species depends on us interacting with each other in a way that is much more than a surface level, pretty packaged, cons- you know, item basically for consumption. 
So for me, trying to get my students to pay attention, well, yeah, attention span is one thing. Um, getting them to do the material, like go through the material that they need to go through to really understand the subject is another thing. I make them watch, docu make them, I assign documentaries a whole lot. Uh, because geography is a very visual subject and documentaries are fantastic ways to get the visual elements, but also to get a whole lot of different researchers talking about a subject. They can see a diversity uh, of um, thought process of people around the world talking about this subject so that it's not just like me saying, well, this is important. Like, oh, look, here's all these other people. Uh, but the the documentaries need to be snappy. They need to be something that they're going to want. I mean, like I'll hear students talk about a documentary like it was some like they'll criticize it like I made them watch it because they're in film school you're watching it because there's climate science and pay attention to that you know go into like allow this to be a deeper dive than going through a couple of memes on Instagram that say like uh <laughs> like this is why climate change is whatever so um climate so change yeah. is the most existential threat we're facing you know as humans you know like Wow, you're so profound. I didn't know that 20 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and under, understanding um you know, fires are part of California's ecology. Yes. Uh drier years are going to mean more fuel for that fire. So then students like think on a we learn to think on this very um very sort of closed loop or there's not a whole lot of information that goes into that, but you need to to analyze more because a wetter year would then mean, and an earlier spring would then mean more growth, which could, even though it's a wetter year, mean more fires that year because you have more fuel to that fire, whatever. The point is, is that you need to think about things beyond like two, three easy steps. And so, so for me, the challenge, because I really do care about students understanding the subject, um, the challenge is getting them to pay attention long enough and getting them to see that it's not three steps, it's often a long process that they need to understand the beginning and end of in order for them to really understand the challenge of climate change, the challenge of, of uh, social justice, the challenge of, of why Latin American economic, why, why the phases of Latin American economics are what they are and that it's not as easy as one, two, three, it's a much longer process than that. And understanding that would help them understand challenges in their future. So yeah. that's one big issue is getting people to pay attention long enough to really understand the complexity of something. Um, and also getting them to understand that their lives are not there for somebody else's consumption mm -hmm. and that they would not only live a happier yeah. life, but a more, a more complete life if they remove themselves from that idea that I'm here for your consumption. That's one of the reasons, <clears throat> excuse me, I don't uh, take pictures of students on field trips anymore. So mm -hmm. I used to, so I go on field trips with students often. We do extra credit hikes. I did an extra credit hike last Saturday with a bunch of students. And 10 years ago, five years ago, I would have taken pictures of them um, either on the hike and at the end. But now I don't do that anymore because they are so used to the idea, went on a hike, take a picture, post it, went on a trip, take a picture, post it. Mm -hmm. and instead of thinking like, why are you on this hike? What is the actual, what is the actual goal here? What are we trying to do? So, so yeah, so there's, there's a lot of challenges today with, uh, 
with a uh, cohort of students who have grown up with neatly neatly pieced bites of of life and have learned that they are there for consumption on social media and getting them to understand not just because they want to get an A in the class, but because I think the survival of our species depends on them understanding the complexity of the world. Yeah, yeah, that's a challenge. It's also a challenge coming out of the pandemic. I mean, geez, like what a what a big curveball thrown into our jobs as instructors. First moving along and then pandemic and everybody go home and figure out how to use Zoom and figure out how to use Canvas and figure out how to teach online right now and uh, do it well because you still need to make sure that a student completes the semester understanding the subject and et cetera, et cetera. And then stay online and package all your classes online and figure out how to be equitable online and figure out how to reach students online and as students like fade more and more into the background. What I think students learned a lot during the pandemic is how to be passive in their learning. They kind of sit there and, you know, they're consuming over Zoom, getting them back into the classroom all last year. Uh, I just noticed the passivity of students that they, I would ask them questions. I would try to get them involved and just nothing like, and there's always quiet students in a classroom, but like last year, I mean, and the mask was part of it. I know that the mask had a important role in public health. That's not what I'm debating, but it was another way for them to kind of hide in the classroom and, uh, and sort of reinforce this idea that they're passive learners rather than active learners. So that plus I'm getting students now who spent like their last two years, maybe in high school, learning online completely disengaged and I'm grading them and I'm like you gotta put information and you have to give me examples you can't just say like yeah that happened because like you can't just restate the question that I asked you mm -hmm. and not give any information in it and they're like what you're hard why are you so mean you know it's like you need to learn how to critically analyze something you can't just tell me like this very surface level of uh, yeah, climate change is happening because temperatures are warmer and uh, it will be very difficult for humans. Come on, like give me some more information. Give me an example. What do you mean? What kind of difficulty? Um, and I and I get more. There's always pushback from students, but I get more pushback from students who are like because they've they've been kind of um, what's the what's the term? Phoning it in. They've been sort of like phoning it in through the end of high school. And now, and this is nothing new, we get, you know, I, I don't have a lot of faith in high school in general. Um, I think that it teaches students to be cynical and doesn't teach them how to critically analyze and teaches them to not trust their teachers. And then they come to City College and we have to like scrape all that away and teach them to trust us again, teach them to, <laughs> instead of being cynical, analyze. Um, and uh and yeah, so that's always been a problem with high school, like people coming out of high school. But now it's like, not only are they cynical, not only do they not trust us, but they're completely passive in their education. And I'm trying to get them back in here, you know, excited again, understanding again. And yeah, so it's challenging. And, uh -huh. it was, and teaching with that mask on, man, I, I would, I did not sign up for being a teacher in that way. I mean, they couldn't hear me. They couldn't see my expressions. My, I have dead pan 
humor. <laughs> that is how I, that is how I discuss things like female genital mutilation in class. You know, how, how am I going to discuss child soldiers and six-year-olds getting married in the world and not have students walk out of class and want to just jump off the bridge, right? So I need to interject it with dry humor that doesn't make fun of those subjects, but allows for students to open up to them in a way where, again, they trust me. So they're willing to learn about it and it doesn't completely just shut them down emotionally. Mm. Um, in order for that to happen, you need to see my face expressions. You need to know that, you know, if I make some comment that is sarcastic, if you can see this reaction versus this, and then they're just like writing it down, you know, yeah. <laughs> writing down some, some joke I made about Florida or something. <laughs> And I like it does look like it. Few things. Now you were outlining the steps, and now I have Alanis Morissette's Eight Easy Step songs in my head. If you haven't heard it, it's amazing about self-deprecation. But now that's all I'm thinking about in the back. I gotta listen to the song when we are done. Um, but you know, you talk about the the mass and and uh being able to use humor. Like, isn't it such a great feeling when especially for people like us who grew up like basically abused and neglected and, and all these horrible things to stand in front of a room and talk and have people laugh, like, and not laugh at you, but laugh at something you said. Like, yeah. isn't that amazing? Like the first time that happened to you. And then once you started to like be able to do it more and more, you must, it's like, wow. It's like, they, you're generally making them, laugh which is hard to do to make somebody laugh is really difficult to do and like genuinely like they can't control it and that that's always like this little teacher feeling where you're like wow it's like i feel like what jerry seinfeld feels like for you know a 30 seconds here you know what he does for an hour on stage you know yeah yeah well and humor making people laugh is something that i've always done because i grew up um dumb and funny looking right like i i was uh ugly and um not smart uh well that's up. what they told you but that, that, that's true. what yeah. that's what i had internalized and understood so my only recourse was making people laugh so i mm. learned how to make people laugh very young which just complicated the whole not doing well in school thing because it's like i was distracting other students or whatever but um but yeah so that that kind of transitioned very naturally into teaching where uh, making students laugh is a way to get them to trust you. It's a way to, when you're laughing, you're open and you're, you're receptive. Um, and uh, it, again, if I'm talking about subjects that are controversial, uh, I want them to be receptive to it, not shut down to it. And, um, and also I have an issue with anything that is, that holds reverence. Like I, Anything, <laughs> anything that's held in high regard simply because it's, it exists, you know what I mean? Like having reverence for something just because you're supposed to have reverence for something, no matter what it is, I will be irreverent about it. I, it needs to be torn down. You know, you need, to, nothing should take itself so seriously. Um, it, when we take things so seriously, simply because you're supposed to take them seriously, it creates a divide. It creates a classist divide, a, a societal divide, and it's not good for us. So for me, like I have irreverence to every subject that I 
that I um that I approach in the classroom and it's because that's how you that's if you hold it with reverence then you're not going to actually understand the ins and outs of it if you yeah. if you don't think about why do we why well I don't know if I should even go into the queen Oh my goodness, that was my next question. I was gonna say, I me thinks Jordy didn't lose any sleep over Queen Elizabeth's death. That's what I was gonna say next. So go for it. Yeah. Yeah, no, like <laughs> why is this person important? I mean, she's important to her family, I'm assuming. I'm not questioning her value as a as another human being in the world, but <laughs> are you kidding me? Are we still still holding a candle for some archaic? way of creating class based simply on who your parents are and that you happen to be born I mean it's all made up like it's all completely it's just fabricated and we just walk into it we're just like no you're supposed to do that's that's what's important it's just it means a whole lot to us you just don't get it um I get it I get that <laughs> I get that uh, in order to feel important in the world still you have to uphold this institution that means absolutely nothing the only thing it means, the only meaning it has is the meaning that you give it. You have complete control over why this person is important and they're important for no other reason than people want to feel like they're important because it makes them still feel relevant in the world. And the only reason you were relevant and important to begin with is because you dominated like so much of the world at one point that the sun didn't set on your empire. You know, you were pressing. <laughs> And and uh, dominating and stealing from most of the world, and that's why you were relevant. And now it's like, okay, we don't have that anymore, but uh, but we'll still hold this 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 image of that up because it makes us feel important. Can I make that the social media post for for this podcast? <laughs> the, I'm kidding. <laughs> me and me uh, ranting about the queen. Also, yeah. she was mean to Diana. You know. Yeah. People who were like, are you sad that the queen? No, she was mean to Diana. Like Diana and people might be like, well, what's the difference? Wasn't Diana was an altruist first and royal second. She was important because she cared about the world and she used her position of privilege to try to make the world better. That is something to uphold. You know, that is something to care about. And she was murdered. No, sorry. That's a that's when we do the conspiracy. Well, you're a scientist. I'm sure you're not big on conspiracy. Theorists, theories. That she was, I mean, yeah. she may have been, right? Who knows? There's a few documentaries have, out there. I have um, a coaster next to my bed and it's her face. Diana. Yeah. Um, oh, and the going to the mass thing was there's this. Um, so when we had to teach with a mask and I had to teach online, um, at, at CSUN, there's a large number of uh, uh, hearing impaired deaf students because they have a very big college of um, American Sign Language and it's very popular. So it's very common that you have students who are deaf in classes there. And, um, you know, with masks, you know, they can't see your lips. And um, it's sort of a, a um, you know, a thing of, of like, you need to, that's another tool they use to decipher language. You know, there's also, uh, there's a whole number of ways, but there's interpreters and there's translators. And it's sort of like, that's something people don't think about too, you know, in that teaching is, you know, how pe pe some people learn by read, by 
hearing and then matching the lips as well. And it's part of a package of understanding if you, uh, you know, need to read someone's lips, you know? And so it's, it's, it's a sort of an interesting kind of, kind of process there that people don't think about in terms of the impacts of the mask. Um, I guess. Well, as by the way, um, all the men in my department, at least the full timers are like partially deaf. None of them can hear. <laughs> and I know that they couldn't, my, my voice is very, very quiet in kind of in normal life. I know that they couldn't hear me basically for the last two years because, and understand me because they couldn't read my lips and they couldn't hear what I was saying. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah, it's, I think, I think that was an issue for people who were fully, like fully hearing impaired, but also we have a lot of people out there who are like 40, 50% hearing impaired and they rely on this as well. They rely on your expressions to kind of get the context and understand. And I think they were just sort of floating out there, not, not getting a whole lot of information in the last couple of years. When we lifted the mass ban like two weeks ago, mm -hmm. I mean, wow. I, universal happiness. Yeah. There's still a couple of students who wear masks, of course, because they want sure. to, which is totally fine, but it was such a like a breakthrough, break free for them. Um, as, as we sort of wrap up, here um i guess i wanted to sort of just kind of ask you a little bit about when you became a full-time teacher and and you know you got hired and you know we've talked a little bit about how you kind of made that happen through your perseverance and that's the great thing about people like us is we never expect anything to be handed to us we we just work to make it happen until it happens um, but, but, you know, in terms of like you, like, did, did anything, what changed for you when you were sort of like welcomed into the group and now you're going to get paid for your entire day, not just 80 minutes a day, you know? We're going to assume that it was a welcome <laughs> rather than like. <laughs> okay. You forced them to welcome you. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of like uh, the, the, um, when I got engaged to my daughter's dad, it wasn't so much a, will you marry me as a well, I guess now we're going to have to get married, you know, um, <laughs> sort of like that versus welcoming versus like, well, now we got this. <laughs> um, so uh, the big difference, and I was made full-time like fall 2020. So in the freaking armpit of, of the pandemic, mm -hmm. um, you know, it was, well, first of all, I made more money. I mean, that's a big thing. <laughs> Yeah. never never underestimate that now like that I was making a ton more money and had um benefits and retirement and was on my way to possibly getting tenure and uh not getting fired from a job for somebody who never expected to have a job ever <laughs> um the prospect of not getting fired from your job yeah that's it makes a really big deal in how you feel about your your kind of ability to spread your wings for one um but i've i feel like okay so so the benefits of being part-time because i was part-time for a long time first of all i was lucky in that um i never had too many challenges to my like i wrote classes i uh taught those classes i 
generally got the schedule in the class, although I was very flexible. I was always, I've always taught at 8am still, I still teach at 8am, which lots of people don't want to teach at Mm -hmm. 8am. I would teach at night. Like I was always very flexible in what, what time slots, but I also was very lucky that, you know, I was, um, my daughter was five months old when I started teaching and I was able to, to commit a significant portion of time to being with her as well as getting to do this thing that I loved. So I was very, very lucky. Um, but you have no control over while I did teach or write classes, you have no control over the, the, the direction that your program is going. Um, now as a full-timer, I have a, a vision of what geography is going to be at the college. And that's going to be something that has an AA and GIS, which is a field of study that has real job growth and opportunity for students. I want that to be something that that City College is known for. That <clears throat> not only can you get a four, you know, a two-year education that leads to your four four-year education, but you can also get certificates or associates in things that will get you a job and lift you up instead of being in a position of vulnerability and weakness. Um, so I get to direct that. I get to direct that I want I want us to have the best geography community college program in the state. And me being full-time, I get to kind of direct that to happen. Like I I I <clears throat> didn't have that as a as a part-timer. So mm-hmm. um so yeah, so the biggest difference is agency, I think. Agency over not just your the classes that you teach the times that you teach them but also what do you want this what do you want your subject to be and again I'm lucky because geography is small if I were an English professor Mm -hmm. I wouldn't have that same that same sort of ability to kind of like direct the boat and be like I want English to be like this I mean there'd be a dozen other people who were like (laughs) sit down (laughs) um so so yeah so being full-time for me has given me a lot more agency in how to direct this program. And I want this program to be the best program there is when it comes to geography. So if it's not, then that's all my fault. (laughs) 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 So we'll see what what happens. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's, that's really well, well said, Uh, being able to have the influence to shape future direction is, is really powerful and i imagine you'll get there i'm not going to go into my josh empowerment thing here but um i mean imagine you'll get there you've come this far you made it happen and i'm sure you're going to force people to listen to you if they if they don't already and that's what's just just so cool about uh community college is that you have an opportunity with the students to take them and shake them up and move them on you know like intervene in their lives in a very serious way and then here in your department you have an opportunity to create new aas and majors and help them and adjust and it's not even a a youth thing you're obviously a younger uh, teacher but it's a it's an experience thing like you are naturally creative because you're a survivor. You are somebody who has to figure things out and nothing has been easy. And I think people don't realize that how 
be careful who you bully and be careful who you <laughs> neglect and who you insult because those people are probably going to rise up and take over the world because they have no other option but to do that or you know not yeah, and, you know and i would say to other instructors out there remember that your students are adults too and that they'll you know life is long they'll come back in 10 years and if you were petty or a jerk to them um and they might be hiring you at some point you know they might be somebody that you have to contend with in a real professional way so i think that's important too is to keep in mind like your your students are people and they'll grow up and they'll be part of the world do you want your impact on them to be one that was that was advantageous to them and help them understand something in a new way or do you want them to be like ugh bad person so are you inviting jacob todd frank to Come take your job, Jordy. That's your saying. <laughs> You'll have tenure by then, so it'd be good. Jacob Todd Frank could never take my job, but he could have his own job. He could have his own, his, you know, his own mark, his own special flair. Yeah, no, he he uh, he will. I we had a conversation. He was out actually harvesting, and he picked up the phone. Can you believe that? He, he he's like, well, that's what you can do when you're following the. It's really hot, but you sure. What's up? <laughs> All right. Well, um, this has been really cool to talk to you about, you know, teaching and all the amazing things we do. It's it's not even like a hour podcast. It's like just a continual conversation because there's so much that that happens all the time, every day. That is amazing. I have uh, you would not believe I have one of the best J101 classes this semester. I can't recall like it's been five or six years since it is. It should be a reality show. Like everyone in there is so dynamic and has like their own personality and their own characters. And I look forward to going to that class and just like being part of that whole experience, you know, and you know that like sometimes you have a class that's kind of like, well, it's one of those semesters and other times you're like, holy cow, this is really exciting. So I, I have one of those and, and, um, it's it's pretty cool. So it's just going back to where we started. It's so fun. We would do it for free because as adjuncts, we practically do or have in your case. We would because it's you hope to get rewarded one day with that full time. Like, yes, you did it. You deserve it. But if you don't, you know, you're rewarded every day when you see what they learn and what they go on to do. And the last preachy thing is, our society values elected officials and politicians and cops and firefighters and everyone has value in, in, in a bunch of different ways. And you hear these elected officials when they're running for office, like, we need housing for our teachers and we need a community where our teachers can live here. And so they're, they're, we're used as like this prop. Uh, it's like, you know, we're like way more important than you guys. Like <laughs> I, what we do, you know, is so, cause it's unheralded. It's sort of just like, we just go in and we do it and we give it and we get it. And we, we, we we're influential in ways that are not look at me kind of thing, you know? And I, you're definitely a part of, a part of, you know, doing that in, in geography and, I'm learning from you about geography. Like, I'm just like, whoa, human geography. It's not like a map. It is a map, 
but it's people on those maps. That's what's really dynamic about it. So anyway, uh, thanks for listening to my five minutes of rambling here. <laughs> well, I, I think that you're right. I think that teachers are used as a prop by politicians in one way or another, and they're used as a prop because they can be easily martyred. And, um, and we shouldn't fall into that trap of uh, where people are like, oh, I think teachers should make as much as Jeff Bezos or something like that. <laughs> like, okay, yeah, no, that makes up for for years of no health care. <laughs> you, you think that about me. Thank you. Um, yeah, so we definitely are used as props. And uh, I would advise people to not fall into the trap of feeling like that's enough to be somebody's prop. Okay, great way to end. Thanks a lot, Jordy. Did, did you want to say something? No, no, I was going to say I have another LeVar Burton shirt on because I have my my read LeVar Burton shirt on and then this is a quote from him. It's uh, read the books they don't want you to read. That's where the good stuff is. Oh, that's great. You that's, know LeVar uh, Burton, the, the person I wish was my dad. You know him? Yeah, yeah. He's We, we talked about him. He's the <laughs> reading rainbow, great actor, roots, educator. I have my Vaqueros. City College oh, shirt here. But it's a Nike shirt. Nike. I did get in the bookstore. Oh. I'm just like thinking you're talking about like climate change. And I'm like, oh, here we're in Nike, you know, so, <laughs> like corporate. Yeah, climate Even change and social justice. And you're wearing something that will never break down in the biosphere and was probably made by five-year-olds. Yeah, but I wear the same clothes. So this, I will wear this so much. It'll probably break down before I have So, so those, those five-year-olds really got there their work that day <laughs> yes they did um okay well thank you and uh we'll talk soon take care all right